And as you're being seated this morning, would you turn, please, with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, working our way through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we're more than halfway through it. So I'm going to read all of Genesis 20. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore him children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Our Lord and our God, as we come once again to your word, to your word spoken to us through the prophet Moses about your servant Abraham, a word that in one sense is far removed from us historically. May you help us to see how your word is always profitable, is always relevant, always cuts to the heart, always points us to Christ. Help us to see that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How could I have done that again? How many times have you said that to yourself in frustration after doing, once again, the very thing that you said you would never do again? Yet, Here you stand outside your car, which is locked with the keys inside, and it's running again. You know that the 95 north exit on Indian Town Road is the second exit on the right hand, not the first one. And you need to go north, but you missed it, and you're going south, and you're going to be 10 minutes late again. Or 
You're going to bed. You really need a full night's sleep tonight. This, you really need it. You got a lot ahead of you tomorrow. So it's, it's only one episode of Fixer Upper tonight. Five episodes later, like Cinderella, the clock strikes midnight and you're in serious sleep debt again. How could I have done that again? There are times when you say it out of frustration, but then there are times when you've probably said it out of sorrow and grief because you crossed that moral line once again that you said you'd never cross. After the last time, you said you'd never use the internet for that immoral purpose ever again, and yet here you are revisiting the same websites. After that last outburst on the kids, the coworkers, you said you were gonna control your anger, never be controlled by it again, and yet here you are with red on your face, under the control of your anger, doing its bidding once again. Or in Abraham's case, after the last time you gave into your fears and unbelief about your wife's identity and lied about it, you said you would never do that again. And yet here you are standing before a foreign king, stranger in a strange land, saying, I'd like you to meet my sister, Sarah. Like Abraham, who tried to pull this trick back in Genesis 12, we are repeat offenders who struggle with repeat sins. We have certain sins that show up on our cosmic criminal record more than others. The author of Hebrews calls this the sins which cling so closely, the sins which so easily entangle us. Each of us has some temptations or vices that have a stronger magnetic pull on us than others or have a stronger adhesive attachment to our hearts than others do. In the past, these were called besetting sins because of the the frequency, the repetition of them, or they were called beloved sins because they seem to be so very near and dear to our sin-filled hearts. Well, here in Genesis 20, Abraham displays his repeat sin and he enters the ranks of repeat offenders. So what are we to learn from this episode in the life of Abraham? I think we're to learn this. Despite the repeated attempt of our repeat sins, we cannot overthrow the plan of God and we cannot outsin the grace of God. Despite the repeated attempts, not for lack of trying, you cannot overthrow the plan of God or outsin the grace of God. And so let's unpack that by looking at this episode in the life of Abraham and drawing out three lessons that teaches us about the Lord and our repeat sins. First, we learn that the Lord lovingly exposes our repeat sins. And I mean that very intently, lovingly exposes our repeat sins. Look at verses one and two with me. So from there, Abraham journeyed. So this is right after he goes out, he sees what the Lord has done to Sodom and Gomorrah. He decides to take a trip. He journeys toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So if you get a sense of deja vu hearing these verses, it's because you should. This is Genesis 12, 10 through 20 all over again. This is She Is My Sister version 2.0. And there's important parallels we're meant to see between version 1.0 and version 2.0. In both of those versions, Abraham decides to take a journey south. We're not told why in this one, but we're told why in the other one that there was a famine. So he's journeying south. And in both, we're reminded that in Abraham's journey, he is a sojourner, which means he's a stranger in a strange land. He is not a resident. He doesn't have the rights of a citizen, the protections of a citizen. And in both episodes, 
Abraham, knowing his sojourning status, selfishly tries to save his own skin by introducing Sarah as his sister. That way, they won't kill him. And finally, in both episodes, the ingenious plan of Abraham puts the promise of God in jeopardy because Sarah, who is introduced as a sister, is then taken by the king of that region as the wife, to be the wife of that king. So there's repetition in this material. And it's not because Moses lacked creative ideas when he was writing Genesis and he just had to repackage old material like many shows do. It's not because the copyists of the Bible made errors and they jumped back to Genesis 12. That's not it at all. The repetition is due to the fact that Abraham is a sinner like the rest of us. He struggles with sin like you and I do. He is very human. And one of the ways that our sin struggles often manifest itself is that instead of learning from our past mistakes, we just keep doubling down. Instead of learning from the past, saying that that didn't work out so well last time, so we're not going to do that again. And kind of lodging that in your memory. Instead of doing that, you know what? We say, in defying wisdom and logic, we say, it didn't work out last time, so we're going to try harder this time. (laughs) We're like that gambler who is in debt, and instead of cutting our losses, walking away from the table, we're like, let's double our bet. Let, let's double. Who can I borrow money from? Let's double down and let's get out of this hole. And you just keep digging and digging deeper and deeper into that hole. The only hope for getting out of that hole, breaking that wisdom and logic-defying cycle, is the first two words that greet us in verse 3. Look there with me. But God. But God. Whenever those two words show up together in the Bible, you know that the Lord is on the move. That the Lord is about to do something. He's about to take the mess that mankind has made and he's about to make a masterpiece by his grace and his sovereignty and his love. We are repeat offenders who think we can successfully sneak around the Lord, but God. But God loves us too much to let us get away with this nonsense. So what does he do? He lovingly exposes our repeat sins. He lovingly exposes them by making sure that we get caught for them. So in verses three to seven, the the but God follows a dream where Abimelech is confronted by the Lord and Abraham's sin comes out. And Abimelech's as well. And then in verses nine and 10, the Lord uses the most unlikely person to confront Abraham for his sin. Abraham is the, the covenant man. He's the chosen instrument of the Lord, the one who has the Lord's special revelation. He's the friend of God, right? Who confronts the friend of God, the covenant man that the Lord chose? It's the pagan, unbelieving Abimelech that the Lord uses to be the rod in the hands of the Lord to take Abraham out to the woodshed, as it were. Look at verses 9 and 10. (laughs) Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Those words are almost verbatim in Genesis 3 when the Lord comes to Adam and I mean, what have you done? It's what the pagan sailors say to Jonah when the lot falls on Jonah. What have you done? It's almost like this calling out the conscience phrase. And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham's cover is blown. The the lie has been discovered The game of hide-and-seek with the Lord is over, and guess who won? The Lord won again, as he does every time. You know, one of the dumbest things that you and I believe at times, whether we voice it or not, 
is that we think we can hide what we're up to from the Lord. When we functionally believe that, we make flat earthers look like sane, normal people. Abraham, think of this, Abraham didn't have a smartphone. He didn't have an Alexa device on him. Bill Gates had not invented that chip that he put in the vaccines yet to read your thoughts. And his secret still gets out to Abimelech. How did it happen? Because God makes us this promise. Know this, your sin will find you out. That's how it got out. It certainly does not feel like it in the moment, but one of the most loving things that God does for us is expose to the light that which we are trying desperately to keep hidden in the darkness. We desperately want it to stay there, hidden, undisclosed. And yet the Lord says, no, this needs to come to the light and I'm gonna bring my light to shine upon it. It feels so painful at the time, but the pain we're feeling is the pain of a loving father's hand who wounds only in order that he may heal. That's the pain. He's like a good and wise surgeon who says, that tumor there that you see there, that you don't think is a problem, is a big problem and we need to cut it out. It needs to go. Contrary to what you may think, getting caught is not the Lord's way of rubbing our face in our sin, saying, you miserable wretch, how could you do this? No, it's the Lord's way of saying, I'm not letting you go. I will not give up on you. I am going to not let this come between you and I. So I'm going to expose this. Can you not look back and see that in your own life? I can look back and see how as a foolish, sinful 11-year-old that the Lord caused me to get caught for stealing money from my parents because he loved me too much to give me over to my thieving heart. I can look back and see as a high schooler that the Lord caused me to get caught for my immoral internet use of all people by my mom and sister. Talk about embarrassing. But now I know that the Lord loved me too much to give me over to my lusting heart. I can look back and see that the Lord gave me a wife who was not impressed with me or intimidated by me for all the right reasons because the Lord loved me too much to give me over to a prideful heart. You want to know how I'm humble? Just meet meet (laughs) Ashley. Where can you look back and see how God lovingly brought to light what you tried to keep in the darkness, how he loved you too much to give you over to your sin? Perhaps even more pressing, where's the Lord at work right now pointing out your beloved sin and saying, it's a tumor, it needs to go. Saying with scalpel in hand, we need to remove this. You, you may love this sin, but it does not love you back. And so I'm gonna help you remove it. Despite our best attempts, God lovingly exposes our beloved sins. Second lesson we learn from this is that the Lord sovereignly overrules our repeat sins. Or to state another way, despite our best efforts, we cannot overthrow the plan of God. Most recently in our study of the life of Abraham, the promise got very specific. The timeline is narrowing down and becoming more clear. So Genesis 18.10, the Lord comes and says, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So the news has come. The birth announcement is there. Things are moving forward. All is going to be well. Finally, the major obstacle to the promises is going to be removed and overcome. But almost immediately after we think that the great obstacle is going to be removed from the fulfillment of the promise, another one comes and takes its place. If you thought Sarah's barrenness 
was the biggest problem facing the fulfillment of the promises? Wait till you meet Sarah's husband. In the 11th hour of God's promised timing to give them a son that Abraham knows is going to happen, Abraham becomes his own greatest obstacle in the way of the fulfillment of the promises. The physical obstacle is about to be removed and a moral obstacle comes in its place. But he thinks he's protecting the promise, right? This is his plan to protect them. And it actually, in his plan to protect them, he puts them at greater risk. But don't worry, Abraham has very good reason for why he's doing it. Look at verses 11 to 13. He's confronted by Abimelech, secrets out, and now he plays personal defense attorney. Abraham said, I did it because I thought. There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So secrets out, lies exposed. You think it's game over, and yet Abraham is like, he's like an animal caught in a trap. Abimelech, the Lord has sprung the trap, and Abimelech is that trap. And here Abraham is in the trap and he's chewing off his own leg with excuses to try and free himself from the trap. So his first excuse is that these people don't fear God and therefore they're going to kill me. I'm an important guy. I need to stay alive. And so, honey, please do this for me. And yet we find out the opposite is true. It is Abraham who, in fact, does not fear God enough to tell the truth and trust him to preserve his own promises. And it's Abimelech who actually has the fear of the Lord and says, okay, in the, after the dream's over, okay, whatever, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll return this man's wife. His second excuse in verse 12 is that technically he didn't lie, right? These are different times, different era, smaller pool of selection opportunity. So Sarah is his half-sister, but his intent was to deceive. Okay, if you're on Jeopardy, say Alex Trebek is still alive, you're on Jeopardy, and the category is definitions. You say, all right, Alex, I want definitions for 200. And it up pops the intent to deceive another person. You give the answer, what is a lie? Correct, you get $200. That is exactly what Abraham is trying to, he's trying to redefine a lie. He's lying. That's all it is. As Charles Spurgeon has said, to call sins by sweet names does not make them any sweeter. His third excuse in verse 13 gives us a window into his pre-planned failure as a husband. Look at verse 13 again. This is the kindness. So he makes his wife take a vow. This is the loving kindness, the steadfast love you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So the biblical role of a husband, contrary to popular opinion, is not to boss his wife around with his self-serving schemes, nor is the role of a wife to submit to her husband in his sinful, self-serving schemes. The role of a husband is to protect his wife, to provide for her and nourish her as if she were his own body, and to promote her spiritual growth. Abraham inverts all of that once again. He does the complete opposite. One of the life supports that, that continues to keep our beloved sins alive is our uncanny ability to justify and defend them. Although I'm, I'm guessing most of you do not have a formal law degree. I know there's a couple of present company included, excluded from that. Most of us do not have formal law degrees, have never had to defend a trial in court. And yet we are actually quite good at being personal defense lawyers for ourselves. Your Honor, 
My client, which is myself, is accused of unrighteous anger. But in my defense, I was only yelling because my kids aren't very good at listening and I was under a lot of stress. Your Honor, my client is accused of being critical and quarrelsome. But in my defense, people believe and think a lot of stupid things and they need to know that. (laughs) Now, I, I don't mean to ignore physiological influences on our behavior and physical health influences and brain chemistry influences on our behavior. It's another category for another time. But ordinarily, regularly, usually, what we call justifications for our behavior, the Lord calls excuses for sin. Call it a sweet name, doesn't make it any sweeter. And the more we believe our excuses, the more we repeat the same sins. And the more we repeat the same sins, the more we believe our own excuses. And the cycle just keeps going on and on in this unbroken loop that we cannot break except for those two precious words that meet us in the beginning of verse three. But God, our sins that we seem to be trapped in and justify and defend seem to jeopardize the promise and plan of God, but God sovereignly overrules our repeat sins. Abraham has functionally abdicated his role as a faithful husband. He has pawned off his wife to save his own skin. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord takes up the role of faithful, jealous husband. Look at verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you had taken, for she is a man's wife. How'd you like to go to sleep? And that's the beginning of your dream. One, I don't think I'd sleep ever again. The Lord is coming and he's, it's like he's that jealous husband who is zealous for the purity of marriage, who wants to uphold the honor of his bride because Abraham will not do it for his own wife. And yet Abimelech rightly pleads his own case before the Lord. Look at verse four and five. Now Abimelech had not approached Sarah. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. So so unlike Abraham, Abimelech is giving real evidence, not excuses for for what's gone on. And so you you could say in one sense, and, and the later in the sacrificial system of Israel, it gives these categories of sin. Abimelech is an example of sins of ignorance. It is someone else's wife, whether he knows it or not. That's still wrong, but his is a sin of ignorance. Abraham, on the other hand, is a sin of willful intent. This is a high-handed sin. Think about in our own court system, we have ways of categorizing uh, crimes. We have first-degree murder. We have manslaughter. And this kind of comes from this, this understanding of the nature of how sin is, is parsed out based on our, our knowledge of it and our willful intent regarding it. So here's the Lord's response back to Abimelech in verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. It was I, the Lord, who kept you, Abimelech, from sinning against me. What a comfort to know that the Lord is not in the heavens, shrugging his shoulders, saying, I I tried to keep my promise to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, but he messed it up. What's a God to do? He's not shaking his head saying, I wanted to bless Sarah. I I wanted to give her a child through Abraham, but Abimelech's too powerful. He's too strong. He's a king after all. What's a God to do? 
If our God is nothing but a helpless spectator in the heavens, subject to our plans and tied up by our sins, then you would be justified in your worry and your anxiety and your hopelessness and your despondency. But what does the scripture say? Our Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain because the Lord is in the heavens and he laughs at the nations. What Abraham intended for evil, God overruled for good. Despite our best efforts, God sovereignly overrules our repeat sins. Third lesson. The final lesson from our passage is this. The Lord graciously blesses despite our repeat sins. Or stated another way, despite our repeated attempts, we cannot outsin the grace of God. Abraham's life is a big, bright spotlight in the scriptures displaying the truth that even though we are faithless, the Lord remains faithful. He cannot forsake his people and he will not forsake his promises. Throughout Genesis 20, who is the righteous God-fearing man? The righteous God-fearing man in Genesis 20 is the pagan, unbelieving, outside the covenant king Abimelech. The unrighteous God-denying man is God's chosen instrument inside the covenant, the one who knows the promises, Abraham. Things are backwards. Things have been inverted upside down. Think about it. In almost every field that we engage in, we function on the basis of merit and qualifications. So for example, you're the captain of the kickball team this afternoon in the park. You get to pick your teammates. Who are you going to pick? You're going to pick the fastest kid, the one who can kick the farthest, who can catch the best. That's how we function. But that's not how the Lord operates here at all. If you're looking at Abraham trying to discern, why did the Lord choose Abraham? You will, you will search in vain by looking at Abraham. There's, there's just no evidence there. If, if Abraham were arrested for the crime of being worthy of God's chosen instrument, we'd have to dismiss the case. There's no evidence there. But on the contrary, if we were to charge Abraham with the crime of being unworthy of being God's chosen instrument, we would need to build a bigger evidence room, a much bigger one. So why Abraham? Why him? So that God could demonstrate to you through him that despite your sins, your shortcomings, your inadequacies, he can use you for his kingdom purposes, just like Abraham. Despite the repeat sins of your past, despite the evidence against you, the criminal record in the cosmic courtroom of justice, the Lord can even use you for his kingdom purposes. Look how the Lord uses Abraham, despite Abraham, in verse seven. Now then, says the Lord in the dream to Abimelech, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Can you imagine what Abimelech thought when he, when he heard this statement from the Lord? You mean to tell me that the guy who lied to me about his wife's identity, who put my life in danger, is a prophet who holds the key to my freedom and deliverance from a sure and certain death? That's about to come upon me. Well, then jump down to verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. But the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Wouldn't you love to know what Abraham prayed? 
in that moment? I'm sure it wasn't, God, I thank you that I'm not like this pagan, unbelieving king, Abimelech. But likely something more like, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and and show that same mercy to Abimelech as well. Abraham helps us grasp two really important truths. God's grace can work mightily through us, despite us. And we have a massive need for God's mighty grace. Both of those things are true and we need to hold on to them at all times. And there's another important answer to the question, why did God choose Abraham? So that you would know that God's blessing and favor is dependent wholly on his free grace, not on your good works and your righteousness. Look at verses 14 to 16. Notice how Abraham walks out of this situation. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. And to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother, I think that's tongue in cheek, a thousand pieces of silver. That is decades and decades upon of wages right there given to him. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you before everyone you are vindicated. It almost seems like if, if we could encapsulate this story into a slogan, it'd be a very Las Vegas-like slogan. Big sins, big wins. You know, sin big, win big. That was gonna be my sermon title until my wife said, don't, don't use that. But that would be a poor choice of slogans to summarize the passage. We can view God's blessings to us, his, his tangible kindnesses to us in one of two wrong ways. First way is this. Let's say we got the college scholarship to the specific college that we've been hoping and praying and working hard for. And then when we open that acceptance letter and we read it out loud, we burst into that song from the sound of music that Maria sings, I must have done something good, right? Great musical, bad theology. In that moment, we are viewing God's blessing as being merited or earned by our behavior. And so you're seeing your relationship with God as transactional. It's all about credits and debits. As long as you keep enough in the credit account, sufficient funds, God's blessings will keep flowing to you. And that's how you view your relationship with God. And yet God's treatment of Abraham shows us that's not how it works. If that were how it's worked, what would happen to Abraham? He would be in Genesis 19, probably. God's treatment does not work like that with us. On the other hand, here's another wrong way we can view God's blessings and kindnesses. Let's say you're really good at counting cards in blackjack. I don't know why I'm thinking of gambling all the time. So you decide to start a ministry called Card Counters for Christ, right? It just, it sounds like it should be something. And 10% of your winnings are going to go to the Sand Harbor Building Fund. So you, you have a justifiable cause for a very good cause. And each time you win big at the casino, you remind yourself of your verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I can do all things including card counting through Christ who strengthens me. You laugh, but there are some people who do that. The problem there is that you are viewing what you perceive to be God's blessing as an endorsement for your actions. So you kind of have a syllogism going. All right, I did this action. I got this good outcome. Therefore, the Lord must approve of what I am doing. But in Genesis 20, the Lord gives no such endorsement of any such action. He very clearly confronts Abimelech for his sin, even though he's done it in ignorance. He said, I kept you from sinning against me. 
And he uses Abimelech to very clearly confront Abraham for his sin. There's no endorsement of sin here everywhere. You're meant to walk away and be mystified and marvel that God blessed Abraham despite Abraham. He should not have walked away like this, and yet he does. Why? God graciously blesses Abraham despite Abraham to show us that he is faithful even when we are faithless. He will not forsake his people. He will not forsake his promises. His grace is greater than all our sin. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. He will always be more full of love than you will be full of sin. We repeat our sins over and over again, become repeat offenders, and yet what does he do? He repeatedly knocks on the door of our hearts, calling us. He says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone who opens the door, I will eat with him and he will eat with me. That is the repeat offender's life verse. That's what it needs to be. If ever there was a time where it looked like the repeat sins of man had thwarted the purposes of God, would it not have been Jesus' final days? Think of his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. Peter had repeatedly denied him. The crowds had repeatedly called crucify him. The Jewish religious leaders had repeatedly borne false witness against him in court after court. And the Roman soldiers had repeatedly scourged and tortured and mocked him. And yet what does Peter, the redeemed repeat offender, tell us later in his sermon in Acts? For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God overrules our repeat sins. And if ever there was a time when the repeat sins of man would have finally drained the well of God's love dry, when it would finally have brought it to the bottom where God says, it's enough, it would have been when they crucified the Lord of glory. Yet even there, what do we see flowing from the Savior's heart? We see his tender mercy, his love still flowing forth even in that moment. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God lovingly exposes our repeat sins. He sovereignly overrules them, and he graciously blesses us despite them. Truly, there is no God like our God. Let's pray.